The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, as the UN's Climate Emergency Summit COP27 continues in Egypt, we look at how artists are responding to the issue. Plus, the National Gallery of Art in Washington DC's $10 million fund for women artists and Paula Modison-Becker at the Royal Academy in London. I talked to Louisa Buck, the art newspaper's contemporary art correspondent and the author of a column about art and the climate emergency about international art initiatives responding to the crisis. Kay Wynne Feldman, the director of the National Gallery of Art in DC, tells me about the museum's new $10 million endowment fund for purchases of works by women artists and how this historic gift from the family of the gallery's first female president, Victoria P. Sant, will aid the NGA in its efforts to fill gaps in its collection. And this episode's Work of the Week is by an artist who might well feature in the National Gallery's considerations, the German painter Paula Modersen-Becker. Dorothy Price tells me about Mother with Child on her arm, nude two, from 1906, one of the highlights of Making Modernism, a show about German women artists that opens this weekend at the Royal Academy in London. Before all that, details of our latest subscription offer. You can save more than 50% when you buy a complete print subscription to the art newspaper with full digital access as a gift for a friend, a colleague or even as a treat for yourself. Visit theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe and enter the code XPOD22, that's X-P-O-D-22, all caps. And if you'd like to receive the January edition of the paper, make sure you subscribe before the 12th of December. Do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast at Brush With, wherever you're listening. Now, the latest United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27, has laid bare the urgency of the climate crisis and the need for governments and corporations to act immediately to limit global heating to the figure of 1.5 degrees C, agreed in the Paris Accord in 2015, and thus avoid the worst impacts of climate change. But can artists and the wider art community have any effect on this issue? Louisa Buck is the art newspaper's contemporary arts correspondent and writes a monthly column at theartnewspaper.com called Green is the New Black. She's also a founder member of the Gallery Climate Coalition, which we featured on this podcast. Louise has been looking into some of the international environmental initiatives that are harnessing the power of art in an attempt to bring about meaningful systemic change. And I spoke to her about them. Louisa, I'm conscious that three weeks ago we had Emma Brown from Just Stop Oil on the programme and that visceral activist urgency was really transmitted in that interview and it's interesting to talk about art projects relating to climate change because to a certain extent it's difficult to grab that energy and transmit it through art isn't it well i also like what she said which was that everyone can protest and activate and be changes in their own respect so i think you know what a lot of the art world's been doing is not exclusively distinct from what just stop all are doing god knows they've been doing it in galleries and museums because they know what great sort of sacred citadels they are to be stormed and attract attention but yes i mean there are a lot of initiatives now taking place across the art world some of them are greenwashing some of them aren't some of them have varying degrees of effectiveness but i think it is interesting that in the face of cop you know i focused in my column at the art newspaper my green is the new black which is quite ironically termed that because i'm really aware of how fashionable darling it is now to be green you know and actually what i want to talk about are things that are really effective and i wrote about quite a few international initiatives that actually you know are trying to kind of grapple a cross borders with what's going on and actually harness the power of art and the art world to get the powers that be by the throat. And one that I particularly was interested in foregrounding was one called Art 2030. It's slightly complicated to explain. It's an organisation, it's a not-for-profit, and it's basically harnessing the power of art and the activist power of art, but tying it in very closely with these things called Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. Also called the Global Goals, aren't they? Yes, well, these were drawn up by the United Nations General Assembly in 2015 as a kind of wish list blueprint, and they're called Agenda 2030. That's the kind of UN resolution that contains these goals. So that's why Art 2030 is called that. And these goals are, I mean, I could give you a shopping list. There's 17 of them. It's no poverty, good health and well-being, clean water sanitation, affordable clean energy, and so on. I mean, they're all 
big aim goals. So the thing about Art 2030 is that it's really networked into the infrastructures and the communications networks of the UN and UNESCO. And for example, last year, Art 2030 rallied art world leaders, Francis Moritz, the Tate Modern Director, Alfredo Jar, the artist, for example, and, and others, to actually address a high-level event on culture and sustainable development at the UN. So there they were, with world leaders, talking about how the art sector cared deeply, what museums and organisations were doing. Now, this all may sound like more hot air, but it actually is engaging with world leaders, with policymakers. And, you know, God knows COP27, if they can't pull this off on an international legislative level, what we're doing in the art world is kind of tinkering around the edges, but what we have got in the art world is the power to rally. So Art 2030 also have been doing all kinds of interventions on various climate days with high-level artists again giving statements. It's called Art for a Healthy Planet, putting forward artworks on social media, and again, lobbying. It's a lobbying force, really. And they also do have some interesting art projects as well that they've promoted. For example, Superflex have a thing called the Touring Interspecies Assembly. Uh, this is the art collective Superflex. And so at big organisational UN meetings and so on, they have these projections and these sculptures to talk about interspecies life. And Dan Vo also has produced a permanent garden in Denmark sponsored by them. So it's more lobbying really than actually artworks per se. But I think it's really interesting because it really puts art up on this really, you know, global leader level. That's right. And those statements that you mentioned, it was influential figures within the art world directly talking to world leaders yes. and things like that, wasn't it? And I think this is really crucial, yes. isn't it? Because one of the things that we often hear talked about within climate emergency discourse is that we're often, as individuals, made to feel bad for the environment and it somehow evoked that we are as much responsible for it as the big corporations, as the big governments. But it's actually saying, well, no, it's the corporations and the governments that are mainly responsible and it's them that need to take action. Absolutely, yes. And I think, you know... Art is very powerful, as are artists. You know, artists are viewed with sort of suspicion slash reverence by the world at large. You know, (laughs) these sort of hallowed creatures who produce these extraordinary works and have this kind of, frankly, disproportionate amount of attention attracted to them and by them, by the world at large. And, you know, how great it is when artists actually channel that and, you know, make these statements, A, showing that they're individuals who care too, and B, also often coming up with really creative solutions sometimes almost by mistake as to how to be sustainable because of course artists are parents and citizens and everything else too I mean we're all in this together this climate emergency and I think it's very interesting I mean at the Gallery Climate Coalition the GCC this charity that I've been involved with now for two years I was a founder member it's now gone beyond being a charity that involves commercial galleries it's now institutions it's sector-wide artists individuals and just to reiterate our core aim for our members if you join you commit to getting your car carbon emissions down by at least 50% by 2030 in line with the Paris Accord and to achieve near zero waste. And now we're getting to our members and saying, okay, you've now got to fulfil these criteria and then you can be an active member. And so if you are taking your carbon accounts, like you do your financial accounts, if you are making these statements, if you are giving tangible, actionable evidence you're doing this, you then become an active member. So we're rewarding good behaviour rather than wagging a finger. And the ones that aren't active members will look frankly like greenwashers. So yeah, that's the way we're doing it but within that artists are playing more and more of a prominent role and I think it's really interesting the voices of artists within our sector God knows they make the art that keep us all going you know but often artists get marginalised and I think there's some really interesting examples of artists both making work and giving examples. Do you want to give us some examples then of artists? Because I think one of the things to stress is it's not just what some people might imagine is like sort of artists making kind of airy-fairy statements about protecting the environment. There are all sorts of strategies that artists are directly involved in. Well, the strategies are as various as the artists themselves. And I'm thinking of the the artist duo, Dan Harvey and Heather Aykroyd, who actually got Tate to declare a climate emergency. They set up this organisation called Culture Declares Climate Emergency. And the most 
vividly visual image of a woman on a white horse wearing one of their artwork, growing green grass coats, walking into the turbine hall of Tate Modern to declare a climate emergency. And since then, I mean, Tate were already doing quite a lot, but they really upped their game, Tate. And it was a very prominent thing. And this was an artist-led initiative. And they carry on making very much environmentally-based work. But then I'm thinking of an artist like Fiona Banner, who you don't think of as an eco-artist. And her giant stone full stops that she was making for galleries and for public spaces, she used one of them to dump on the doorstep of the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Rural Affairs to go full stop enough as a guerrilla exercise, basically, with Greenpeace on the doorstep of a government building. So using the full stop really literally. Another one, it was about a year ago, there's another one about a day later, was put on a boat, a Greenpeace boat, and taken up to Dogger Bank in the North Sea, where Greenpeace were putting boulders on the ocean bed to snag the fishing nets of the illegal fishers in marine protected waters that the government were turning a blind eye to. And she put one of our full stops there. So it literally was a boulder being activist. Another artist I'm thinking of, almost by mistake, Haroon Mirza was given a commission in, in Marfa in Texas to do a series of standing stones that responded to the sunlight and emitted solar-powered LED lights and, and music and noise. And he was in Texas, like oil state incarnate, but wanted to make something that was solar-powered, not oil-powered, to make his artwork work. And there was no solar industry, even though Texas has tons of sunlight. So he actually almost kick-started a little solar industry in Marfa. And now most of the people around there now use solar power for their power. So it was like a byproduct. And, you know, artists are endlessly inventive, or some of them just lead by example. Gary Hume, again, you know, painter working with, frankly, fossil fuel paint, gets household gloss paint, but he has insisted that his dealers and, indeed, any institution that shows his work, the work only gets to them by sea and not by air, which is 90% less emissions if you ship something by sea rather than by air. So all over the place, artists are making, you know, interesting, creative solutions, leading by example, raising profile. And one other example I'll very quickly give is the Gallery Climate Coalition, in collaboration with Christie's, had a series of auctions of high-profile artworks. Anthony Gormley, Cecily Brown, Rashi Johnson, you know, really who commanded big prizes. We raised over a million quid which then went straight to client earth. They're legal activists. They take corporations, they take countries to court, get coal-fired power stations shut down. And this was the power of art again. Absolutely. And interesting, you know, talk about problem solving and creative solutions and so on. There's another initiative I know that you've written about in your blog, which is really interesting. It's called Starts, but it's S plus T plus art. So science and technology. And it's artists working kind of cross sector to solve climate problems. This is it. And it's funded by the European Commission and aims to bring science, art, technology together, you know, to protect the environment, to find solutions. So it's a cross sector collaboration. And they've had us done a series of residencies, I think about 20 or 20 artists have gone to I think about 12 host towns across Europe to respond to the specific area but also just to think up schemes think up ways to make art world life more sustainable and they had a series of exhibitions I think one is closed now which was um, called Reworld and that was in Milan at the Meat Digital Centre but you can still catch Rewild at Maxi the National Museum of 21st Century Arts in Rome and I think one called Retool in Germany and among the artists showing there I mean there's, there's one called Samira Bellini Aluat she's made a prototype for a public garden that's exclusively illuminated with light coming from a specific type of bacterial cultivation that generates free electricity. There's some Greek artists who've done a nomadic film festival that's completely powered by agricultural crops. Somebody else, a British artist, Kate Austin, an Italian, Fara Peluso, have devised a video sculpture which has a whole circular alternative to extractive models. It's a prototype, apparently, of some amazing biomaterial that could replace vinyl records with a carbon-low way for listeners to acquire sound work. So, you know, this is all artists inventing stuff and doing stuff and and of course, not all artworks will do that. But I love the way that artists can be so multi-stranded in their effectiveness. Absolutely. And going back to the idea that art can take as many forms as the artists themselves and therefore can address the environment in as many different ways. I'm conscious that to a certain extent we expect too much of our artists. Artists actually just surviving right now is pretty tough as an artist anyway. But actually, even if artists aren't making art that in any way addresses climate change, they can still make a contribution, right? Well, vis-a-vis, you don't think of Cecily Brown as an environmental artist, but she gave an artwork that was worth several million pounds to an auction that then directly enabled a coal-fired power station to be shut down. So, I mean, you know, artists 
as we said earlier, they're humans, they're people with lives, with children, with futures, you know, and they are struggling to survive. They're also not some great oracle. I mean, not every black artist has to endlessly do work about identity rights. Not every female artist has to be, you know, constantly banging a feminist drum. We hope that all these things are in their psyches. But, you know, the work doesn't have to be about that or specifically addressing that. We're, we're multifarious beasts, all of us. But having said that, you know, basic things, feminism, racial equality, social justice, climate justice, are part of all of our lives. And so, you know, artists can address these things in multifarious ways. And I think, you know, they've proved themselves to be incredibly effective in addressing environmental issues or indeed working with organisations to enable that to be so and, you know, working for the greater good. But, you know, frankly, if our world leaders at COP27, as we sit here now, aren't really getting shoulder to shoulder and trying to change legislation, I mean, we in the art world as in the world in general, we're all stuffed, basically. Absolutely. Let's talk more about your blog, because it's a monthly blog. Yeah. But it's a kind of practical guide in lots of ways. Yes, you introduce initiatives you know, that artists are doing, but but also, in a way, you're giving advice to different sectors, aren't you? Well, it's sort of reporting from the front line a bit, you know, because I try to give a different theme each month. So, you know, when it was the summertime, I did a whole thing on the idiocy of offsetting and how really, you know, everybody's ticking that box on their flight and hoping that they're going to kind of, you know, offset their carbon. is nonsense. You've put the carbon into the atmosphere. So therefore, you know, you have to basically then take responsibility for that, fly less, or if you have to, invest in something we, we call them strategic carbon funds. So people are actually going to bring about systemic difference and change rather than just sort of hoping that you're going to kind of magically whisk your carbon out. That was a holiday one. Art fair, when I did a whole thing about art fairs who of course you know not known for their sustainability in any way shape or form also we've launched a shipping campaign at the gallery climate coalition so i did a whole section on shipping and the the advantages of of shipping by sea but also the risks of shipping by sea and how we've got to get the insurers on board so yes i'm a big believer in practicality nuts and bolts actionable outcomes is my slogan on the t-shirt you know (laughs) and if people aren't doing stuff and being seen and be counted hence this new strata of active membership at the Gallery Climate Coalition. So you're not just putting your name on the list of members and sitting back and maybe singing a few thousand quid in our direction, which is very nice, by the way, but that's not really enough because we're all in it together. We've all got to change. So the blog very much deals with that, the column. And I think, you know, I try and make it thematic. I try and make it not too finger-waggy. That's the other thing. You don't want to frighten people off. But you've also got to make people realise how serious it is and how we can all do something. And all lobby, you know, I think voices, squeaky wheels, you know, activists. I mean, not everybody wants to rush into the National Gallery and throw a can of tomato soup at a Van Gogh. But, you know, we have all got ways locally, professionally, you know, societally, in all the different communities that we operate in to make a difference. My sense is that it has shifted a bit in terms of art world consciousness, the ability to affect change within the art world. I know we've got a bloody long way to go, but do you sense that it's moving? Do you think people are sitting up and taking a bit more notice than they were? I certainly think they are, big time. But also, we've got a very long way to go, but a very short time to go exactly. in it. I mean, if things don't change now, and we've almost reached the tipping point, that will be the end, you know? I mean, I don't wish the, the voice of doom, but it really is the voice of doom. And even us in the global north, we're the guys who've done most of this stuff. Even we're now being a affected by it and never mind everybody in the global south across Bangladesh across tracts of Africa etc etc people being displaced losing their livings environments being totally decimated I mean it's happening now so yes there has been a change but I think there needs to be a really big systemic change for all of us and the art world I think does have a role to play because it leads it's symbolic it's a signaler and I think you know the more it really is uncool to fly everywhere. It really is uncool to have all this waste, all this expenditure, all this stuff that you just trash at the end of an art fair or a big exhibition. This idea that everything has to be kind of new, new, new. And quick, quick, quick. I think speed is a really bad environmental indicator. If the art world changed its business models, so stuff took longer, it was planned more in advance, that's all much more sustainable. So it all sounds a bit boring and kind of common sense in a way, but it really is a fact if people just changed within the art world changed their mode of operation and didn't want everything by yesterday and actually could plan properly ahead and actually could you know make provision that would make a huge difference i think louisa thank you very much thank you
You can read Louise's Green is the New Black column at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android or iOS, which you can download from Google Play or the App Store. Coming up, we hear about the National Gallery of Art in DC's $10 million fund for work by women artists and Paula Modison Becker's modernist mother and child. Before all that, here's this week's news bulletin. Italian archaeologists have announced the discovery of 24 ancient Roman bronze statues in a thermal bath in San Cassiano, a small town in the province of Siena in Tuscany. The figures date from between the 2nd century BCE and the 1st century CE and include votive statues of pagan gods as well as depictions of young men, elderly matrons and emperors. Archaeologists speculate that the works, five of which are around a metre tall, were cast by local craftsmen. A number are so well preserved that they still carry inscriptions of the names of emperors local Etruscans, the pre-Roman people that lived in the region. Massimo Ossana, the director of Italy's museums, said that they are among the most significant bronzes ever produced in the history of the ancient Mediterranean. The auction of works from the late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen fetched a record-shattering $1.5 billion at Christie's New York on Wednesday evening. The hammer total for the sale was $1.29 billion, in the middle of Christie's pre-sale expectation of between $1 billion and $1.38 billion. Twenty artists' auction records were broken and five works by Seurat, Cezanne, Klimt, Van Gogh and Gauguin sold for over $100 million, including fees, itself a record. And finally, the long-anticipated online database of art looted from the historic kingdom of Benin, now in Nigeria, has launched, shining a light on more than 5,000 objects housed at more than 100 museums worldwide. Digital Benin, as it's called, could accelerate the restitution of the ancient African artefacts plundered from the Royal Palace of Benin by British troops in 1897. The database currently includes data on Benin objects from institutions across 20 countries. Visit digitalbenin.org for more. And you can read more on all these stories on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This November, Christie's presents a remarkable private collection assembled with an exacting eye for quality. The collection of Lord and Lady Weinstock comes up for auction in London on the 22nd of November, presenting old master paintings, English and European furniture and works of art, silver, gold boxes, porcelain and stunning jewellery. Arnold Weinstock was a leading industrialist in post-war Britain and one of the great figures in British business and political life in the second half of the 20th century. He and his wife and a wide-ranging and varied collection that includes such names as Herring, Chippendale, Inson Mayhew, Ramsey, Lemoine, Cartier, Garrard and Van Cleef and Arpels. The collection will be on view at King Street from the 17th to the 21st of November. Entry is free and open to all. Discover more on Christie's.com. Welcome back. Now, the National Gallery of Art, or NGA, in Washington, D.C., last week announced a new $10 million gift to fund purchases of works by women. The gift, from the family of the gallery's first female president, Victoria P. Sant, who died in 2018, will aid the institution in its efforts to fill gaps in its collection by purchasing key works by historic and contemporary women artists. The gallery also announced that, earlier this year, and with money separate to the endowment fund, it had acquired its first pieces by the Bolognese Mannerist painter Lavinia Fontaine, and the Spanish Baroque sculptor Luisa Roldan. And while purchases of work by women artists at the NGA have increased in recent years, they still fall short of parity. In the two years preceding May 2022, works by women artists accounted for 35.5% of all works the institution had acquired by purchase, up from 20.3% in the previous two-year period. To find out more about the new fund and the NGA's attempts to have a truly equitable acquisition policy, I spoke to Kaywin Feldman, the gallery's first female director. Kaywin, to start with, when did plans for the acquisitions fund begin? I think early in 2022, we started conversations. And uh, needless to say, it's long been identified that the National Gallery needed to expand the collection of work by women artists. So that's not a new concept, but discussions for the fund started in 2022. You say that the issue has long been discussed, but does that precede your arrival at the National Gallery of Art? I think it does. Really, all museums are conscious of the fact that our collections have been limited for quite some time. And in fact, at the National Gallery, 
currently only 8% of the works of art in the gallery's collection were made by women artists. And if you think about 50% of the population roughly being um, women, you can see right away that we have a gap. Absolutely. So, of course, I mean, there are all sorts of mechanisms for acquiring works of art, and an endowment fund is only one. We have listeners from all over the world, so you can broadly explain how an endowment fund works within the context of a U.S. museum. Absolutely. So endowment funds are crucial for the growth of a museum's collection. For a museum like the National Gallery, we are incredibly lucky to be supported by the American taxpayers for our daily operations. But the taxpayers don't support the purchase of works of art that comes usually from either gifts from private collectors, from direct funds given by um, private individuals, or in, with endowments. And with an endowment, the donor gives an original gift that we refer to then as the corpus, and that is then very wisely invested. And over time, it grows and it spins off what we call the proceeds. And most museums use some kind of formula as to the proceeds that they can use. And the National Gallery is conservative. We look at a five-year trailing average of the endowment's performance and usually take 4% of that trailing average into whether it's operations or, in this case, specifically for the purchase of works of art. So, therefore, this is very much about collecting in the future. But can you make plans now? So what are the principles for its use now, if you like? Yeah, one of the beauties of it, I have to be honest, is that it is the donors, you know, deliberately wanted us to be able to acquire works by women artists across all of our collecting areas. So it can go from artists from the you know, 13th century up to yesterday. And our collection is predominantly artists from Europe or the United States, but not exclusively, particularly in contemporary art. We tend to be able to look more globally. So really, it's in any collecting area of the National Gallery. And in terms of the people that are responsible for spending that money, your curators, as well as you, of course, do you dedicate people to the fund? Because obviously some dedicated funds in museums have with them attendant curators who will then look at that particular area. But will you do that in this case? No, actually, we won't have the specific curators. It is open to all curatorial areas. And so we are absolutely excited as our curators are working and finding great masterpieces by women throughout the collection. That's interesting. And and obviously, in terms of the way that those things work, obviously, your curators have a tough job in this case, because on the one hand, they've got to collect retrospectively lots of the women artists who are now very prominent were not widely available in previous decades or some of them even relatively unknown and relatively undiscovered so there's a lot of research that accompanies that isn't there and so in a way are you prioritizing research through other funds if you like in terms of women artists of the past in particular yeah although i would um, amend your comment about it being a tough job it is an exciting and wonderful <laughs> job um i think and they're certainly up for the challenge uh, so we do have other funds available for travel for research and you know research and publishing has always been a cornerstone of the national gallery's work and so that absolutely will continue. And as you were noting, it's, it's such an exciting era as we're becoming more aware of artists, either who had work that they created that wasn't attributed to them, it was attributed to their male father, husband, uncle, and more and more works you know, are becoming um, known. And so while it's a limited market, particularly when you're looking at the early modern era, um, there are great works out there, and the recent acquisitions that we made of the Luisa Roldan and the Lavinia Fontana are great examples of really important masterpieces that are still available on the market. Just to be clear, those two acquisitions actually weren't bought with money from this fund. They were bought from other funds, but they're almost like emblems of what you're attempting to do with this fund. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yes. We haven't actually started using any of the proceeds yet to acquire anything. It always takes time for the fund to grow and then spin off proceeds. So we haven't used it yet. But those two works, yes, are emblematic. Obviously, when it comes to the market, suddenly great works might appear 
very quickly, unexpectedly, and so on. Are you able to be fleet-footed enough to acquire those kind of works? Obviously, because with an endowment, as you say, it takes time to build up the funds to be able to afford things. Right. So, you know, in the shorter term, it will be more difficult as we find other funds and donors. And we do have other donors who are interested in supporting in this area. But I am also proud of the trustees of the National Gallery. They believe in being opportunistic and in supporting the gallery uh, so that we are able to take advantage of unique opportunities as they come along. And as you may know, we have a small board at the National Gallery, just nine trustees, five private individuals, and four ex officio by virtue of office. And so we are able to move quite quickly. I want to sort of look at the gaps, if you like, in the collection. Are there particular areas that you've identified that you do need to acquire? For instance, I was sort of briefly looking through the collection just to see, are there Artemisias in your collection? Are there Sophonispo Anguissolas? You know, have you identified the sort of key territories within that collection that you really need to make investment? Yeah, as you were just pointing out, I think the most glaring gaps we have are in our Italian, you know, we don't have a new phrase to replace old masters, but our (laughs) early Italian works and um, Spanish, those really are the most glaring. But having said that, really, it's across the collection pre-1900. We're actively really looking and want to increase works But that doesn't preclude the rest of the collection. So obviously it gets easier to collect great uh, work by women artists in the modern and contemporary eras. So we are staying attuned to that. And also thinking about with our exhibition program. And so, for example, the exhibition that Andrea Nelson did here called New Woman Behind the Camera was an incredibly successful show for us. And with that exhibition, we really worked hard to grow the collection of works by women photographers, you know, up to about the Second World War was the rough, you know, 1960s cutoff. And we were able to add 60 works to the collection in conjunction with that exhibition by women artists. And often that motivates donors if they know that the work is going to be seen right away, is going to be really important, then they're excited to step up and help us acquire the works. Obviously, when you're addressing such a big issue like this, as you say, it's an exciting challenge, but also there are sort of invidious choices that have to be made by curators to a certain degree, aren't there? Because how do you assess the importance of an acquisition by one artist against another artist, both of whom are urgently in need of acquiring by the the museum? How do those kind of choices get thrashed out? Do you have sort of curatorial discussions between all the different departments saying, well, well, actually, no, no, we need these funds now. How does it all work? We do. And as you can imagine, whatever potential acquisition is on the docket of whichever curator is for them the most important possible acquisition. And so often then it comes to uh, me and our fantastic chief curatorial and conservation officer, E. Carmen Ramos. And so Carmen and I then really are charged at looking across the institution and thinking about funds that are available. Perhaps there are private individuals out there who might help us to acquire something that might be more in their interest area. But at the end of the day, you know, resources are always finite. And so you have to make decisions and pick and choose. I had a very generous patron when I was in Minneapolis who, when I would approach him about an acquisition, he would wag his finger at me and always say, you can only spend a dollar once. You know, is this the object? And of course, now I do it with curators and they hate hearing it as much as I hated hearing it from my patron. But it's true. You know, we really do have to look and say, you know, why this object? Why now? Is this the one? And it's a difficult question because, you know, we have our curators are doing their job. They are pushing forward great possibilities. But but we do have to think about the balance of the collection. You know, where should we spend the resources And then, you know, judging each work on its merit. We live here under the really incredible shadow of Andrew Mellon. And when Mellon founded the National Gallery, he put it in all of our, you know, original charter. Um, It's been in our bylaws that we hold a bar of excellence for the collection. And as you may know, we don't deaccession at the National Gallery. So when we bring something in, we're bringing it in forever. And so that means that we just, I think, go that extra mile with the research and the analysis of the quality of the work of art. 
I was intrigued by something that you said in a previous interview where you said that that bar of excellence, the sort of definition of it shifts over time. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about that? Because I think that's an intriguing concept. Yeah, I do have some members of the public who say to me, well, the reason there aren't women artists in the collection is because they just haven't been good enough. They haven't met that bar of excellence. And, you know, I don't obviously agree with that comment. I think it reflects more, again, the sort of lack of awareness of work by women artists, the harder challenges they have had throughout history in being recognized and rewarded. And so it's, you know, on us to really communicate that what we're looking for and why and why that particular work does meet our bar of excellence. And I love to quote our trustee, Darren Walker, who always says that to be excellent in America today is to be diverse, to be inclusive, and to be sure that your collection represents women and artists of color. And that is part of excellence in the 21st century. Talking about artists today, one of the interesting things it seems to me is that the artists are incredibly instructive about the kind of artists from the past that they are interested in. I wonder, do you consult artists as part of what you do in terms of looking to the past? Absolutely. I think I speak for all of us in saying it's one of the joys of the job to work with living artists. It was really exciting when the National Gallery hosted the Afro-Atlantic Histories exhibition. We had several artists here to install works and as part of our programming And it was really exciting to talk to them about a view for the collection, about how we think about the African diaspora and relationships across the collection. And I've been thinking more and more of of late about how the gallery in our founding really mirrored society in the way that we looked at schools of painting. You know, for us, Italian art was very distinct from French art, from Dutch art, and while those you know, schools absolutely, I think, exist, what we've missed is the cross-pollination, the globalism that was present in the world even before the 20th century influence. And so we're thinking about the collection less as a chest of drawers with the Spanish school, the Dutch school, the German school, and more of a series of constellations. And I think that helps us to think about the collection a bit differently in some really exciting ways. The fund at the moment is $10 million, right? Are there plans for expanding it? Can it be added to? Are you inviting people to contribute? How do you go about growing it, I guess? Yeah, so the growth, I think, will be in the very wise investment of our brilliant investment committee to grow the fund over time. This fund in itself is specific because of it being named for our wonderful prior president, Vicki Sant. So um, we don't see other individuals donating into this fund, but it doesn't mean that we won't continue to fundraise in other areas. And for example, we just acquired at our last meeting a painting by the American artist Gretchen Rogers, and that was funded by generous patrons who wanted to see us increase work by women artists in the American collection. It's the Valone Fund, and that's enabled us to acquire Roger's work. Well, Kaywin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Wonderful. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to talk. You can read more about this story on the website or the app. And now it's time for the work of the week. Tomorrow, the 12th of November, the Royal Academy of Arts in London opens Making Modernism, a show focusing on four important German women artists in the early 20th century. Alongside Keta Kolwitz, Gabriella Munter and Marianne Verefkin in the show is Paula Modersohn Becker. And it's her painting, Mother with Child on Her Arm, Nude 2, from 1906, that we're going to look at. I went to the Royal Academy to speak to the show's curator, Dorothy Price, about the painting. Dorothy, we're talking about Paula Modersohn-Becker. Can you just set the scene about Paula before we talk about the work? Because she's an extraordinary figure, but this is made in 1906 and she dies the following year, right? She does, yeah, very sadly. She dies of a pulmonary embolism three weeks after childbirth, um, which is the end of a very intense period in her life where she has decided to leave her then husband Otto Modersohn who's also an artist who is also an artist and 
They have letters to and forth. She leaves Morzorn in Vorpsvede, the artist colony in northern Germany, where Morzorn and his fellow artist Fritz Mackensen and others set up a colony to get back in touch with nature. Like many artist colonies at the turn of the century, looking towards France, looking to Brittany, and all those kind of artists kind of on avant. In Germany, there are also artist colonies, and, and Volksfeder is one of the main ones. Because of the landscape there, it's a very particular kind of landscape with these very low horizon lines, these vast expanses of sky, these kind of peaty, boggy meadows, and these silver birch trees. And Paula Becker comes from Berlin... Um, to train again with Fritz Mackensen, who had taught her in Berlin. She comes to Volksweder as a young artist, and she really, really tries hard <laughs> to fit in with this landscape genre, but she just keeps getting pulled back to the figure. She's interested in people, and that's really where her heart lies. So even her Volksweder paintings, although her early ones are landscapes, and we have one in the exhibition, they're always peopled by something. Even that landscape that we've, we've borrowed from Oxford has uh, a little car with cows in the background so she can't help herself but put people her landscapes she talks about her personal feeling for her subjects yeah. doesn't she yeah for her she says in her diary personal feeling is the main thing and for her that personal feeling is interrelationship with other people so she gives up trying to fit in with the Vorpsvida colony and what she really, really wants to do is go to Paris. She yearns to go to Paris because she thinks that's where the action is. She knows that's where the action is <laughs> in, in you know, the early 1900s. Uh, and she does, and she goes three times in her life. Each time she leaves Otto behind and he lets her go each time on the premise that she's coming back. But the third time... For her, it's the final time for her. She thinks that she's never going to go back to Otto and Vorpsvida life, that what she really has to do is find her way as an artist in Paris. And that's where she paints this particular painting. So she is effectively a single woman at this, yes. at this stage. She's, es- she's escaped yes. Vorpsvida and she's in Paris soaking up that extraordinary cultural life. Yes, and she wants to register at the École des Beaux-Arts and she wants to take a full course there and she needs admission to the École des Beaux-Arts through a portfolio of drawings which she's left behind in Vorpsvida. So she writes to Otto several times says, please send me my portfolio so I can enrol in École des Beaux-Arts which is obviously really tricky because she's left him and she says she's not coming back but can you help me so there's always this going on in her letters to him uh, and then there's another letter saying oh have you sent the have you sent the portfolio yet because if you don't there's no point because I've missed the registration so what she does is she can take extramural classes that they call Disbo art so she does that as well and she you know records in her diary all the amazing art she sees she she loves Manet she loves Courbet she's not so keen on Odeon Redon um, and but she sees all of these exhibitions she goes to Duran Ruel's gallery and sees all the new French art that's being exhibited and she really soaks that in and learns from it. But crucially also she goes to the Louvre. She describes the Louvre as, is it the Alpha and Omega? Yes, it is exactly that, the Alpha and Omega for her. And what she really loves in the Louvre are the Egyptian mummy portraits, the Fayam portraits. She loves their simplicity and the fact, I think, that they are so direct and yet they're so old and the immediacy of them reaching across time and that's what she really responds to and she paints a series of electrifying portraits one of them of Werner Somba the economist where he is literally electrified there's a kind of red outline of him uh, on his head and, and you can really track the relationship between those those Egyptian mummy portraits and her work and, and especially here I think I mean it's wonderful that we're talking about this work called Mother with Child on Her Arm New 2 which is made in the autumn in 1906 Mm. it strikes me that you can really see the passage of time here art historically you know on the one hand there is a kind of solidity and ancient quality to these but also this is very much modern painting this is modernism writ large too right yeah absolutely you can see both can't you you can see where she's looked in the louvre where she's looked at this kind of very kind of stylized facial features these big eyes this solid nose this kind of square jaw almost but also where she's been looking at Gauguin as well right Mm. so the holding of the fruit just up to her chest and that relationship between the lemon she's holding and the orange that the child on her arm is holding and the sort of little rouge cheeks that the baby has and also her own rouge cheeks and there's a lovely interplay I think between all of those things in this painting that she kind of picks out and in the catalogue you talk very powerfully about 
the nude as the sort of contested territory of this age. You know, yeah. Les Demoiselles d'Avignon by Picasso is the following year, Blue Nude by Matisse also. Yeah. And here she is in 1906, and she's, she's entering into that discussion, right? Yeah, no question. And she's really impacted by Manet, of course. We can't forget Manet and Olympia and Dejeuner Sulev, uh, and, of course, Gauguin and his nudes as well. You know, she realises what she needs to do to be a great painter, and she writes in her diary to her sister and to her friends, Foglis, you know, I'm becoming something. You know, she has really strong self-belief when she's in Paris. She knows that she's doing some great work here, but with no one else around her to tell her that, you know, she has to get that inner strength from herself, and so she, she constantly kind of reiterates that you know I really think I'm becoming something I think I'm really going to have an effect you know with my work she has a really interesting relationship with motherhood with her depictions of infants and so on again she's a woman striving to be a modern painter in this time she's doing things which are very unconventional she's out there on her own as you say in Paris can you say something about what it meant for her to make a portrait of a woman with a baby in that period I think what it meant for her was an exploration of the tension in the identity for women who are artists in this period, whether they were mothers at this point or not. So in this particular instance, Maudison Becker wasn't yet a mother, but she was a stepmother to Elspeth, Otto's daughter from his first marriage. And there was this constant sort of familial pressure and expectation that she would just slot into that family with Elspeth and that she would have her own child with Otto and they would be, play happy families in Vorpsveder. And she does want a child, but she doesn't want it yet. She wants to achieve something in her painting first and so that is the point of tension for her always I think in these particular paintings and she reinvents the trope of the nude right if it is a reclining nude for Morton Becker it's always with a child it becomes a maternal nude not an eroticized nude and that's a key difference in how she enters the fray of modernism I think absolutely I wonder if we might get a bit closer because I love the way she applies paint there's an extraordinary solidity about the structure of the painting and yet at the same time that tenderness and the tenderness is really felt up close I think in these lovely brushwork yeah I agree it's very beautiful isn't it and also really interesting the way in which her technique changes across the canvas I think you know and like she's almost trying all the time to think about how to break up her technique to make it modern I think so while you've got this kind of particular kind of gessoed effect on the torso, it's almost like she thinks, oh no, I need to stop that detail and kind of simplify my form on this hand that's cupping the baby. Uh, and suddenly that hand becomes quite different. Different tone, different colour, different technique. You know, that's her emergent modernity, I think. Absolutely. Was she engaging in colour theory and things like that as well? Because obviously there was all those kind of colour theories that were emerging at the mm. end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. Mm. Lot of the fauves engaged with all sorts of interesting yeah. Sura and everybody else. That's a really interesting question. I think my sense of that would be, she doesn't really mention it that much or explicitly in her diaries, not in the way that Varefkin and, and Munter talk about it. But I think in, inevitably, given that she was registered with academic training, either Académie Colorossi and the École des Beaux-Arts, she would have had some of that. And, uh, and also, you know, a bit of art history as well within that. So I imagine they would have had some Chevreau... Um, you know, his colour wheel and all as, as part of the kind of basic training, I think, at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. And tell me, was this work shown? Was, was it seen by critics? How was her work interpreted? During her lifetime, not so much, no. When she died, Otto and his companion looked in her studio, in her atelier in Vauxhall, and discovered over 500 paintings in there just lying about in the studio. I think she wanted to exhibit, and they were exhibited after her death, and there were lots of exhibitions of her work. And in fact, by 1923, obviously quite a long time after her death, the first monograph on her was published by Gustav Pauli, the art historian. So she was actually very celebrated posthumously, sadly, as, as happens to so many artists. Uh, and I think, you know, had she lived, I imagine she would have had more exhibitions um, in Bremen and around and then had her name known more um, but there was a really strong effort after she died to keep her name in view and to get her known and to get her reputation known it was almost like a memorial in a way I think to her because she died aged 31 she was so young she was 30 when she painted this extraordinary what's interesting I guess is that as you say she died three weeks after giving mm. birth she's thinking about motherhood she then 
moves on to being a mother herself. And this sort of is almost like a prelude to those self-portraits pregnant, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So this comes in the autumn of 1906, at the end of this year of separation and angst from Otto. So she leaves him in February 1906, goes to Paris, arrives in Paris... And then they start this long, long drawn out <laughs> separation that ends up not being a separation. She wants it to be a separation. He can't let go. All her friends intervene. <laughs> and then she finally takes advice from a sculptor called Bernard Hotker, who's also living in Paris at this time, and his wife. And she visits them a lot in Paris. And they sort of intercede between Otto and Paola and from their advice, because she trusts their advice, she actually does end up reconciling with him. And in November, she is reconciled with him. And so this is really at the end of that period. And then she's back in Vorpsvida by January, is pregnant in February, March, and dies in November of the childbirth-related embolism. So, yeah, it really is very much towards that period of kind of reconciliation and and kind of anguish you can feel it in her diaries mm. where she writes she writes to all her friends she writes to her mother a lot saying please don't hate me mother i have to do this i know you hate me please don't it just i need to do this it's really urgent you know i was reading some of her diaries about this moment and um just reminded me you know of my own kind of separations in life it just still has that strong immediacy that kind of emotional trauma that we all go through when we're breaking up with someone. Absolutely, and of course the reason that she's going through all that is because of this extraordinary belief in herself as an artist and I think that's what really emerges from this it's, it's such a confident painting Yeah, absolutely, I, and all of them are, I mean, this is one amongst a whole series she painted so many nudes in this year self-portrait nudes just constantly grappling with the nude, putting herself into art history through this genre and reinventing it as a genre as well and saying, you know, well, Gogan can do it, I can do it too. You know, it's not an exclusive preserve of all the male modernists around me. Well, Dorothy, thank you so much. Pleasure. Making Modernism, Paula Modersohn Becker, Keta Kolwitz, Gabriele Munter and Marianne Verefkin is at the Royal Academy of Arts in London from the 12th of November until the 12th of February 2023. And that's all for this week. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Louisa, Kaywin, and Dorothy. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.